Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DOD, industry, and other subject matter experts who explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. It is no secret that allies and partners are the key to success as America seeks to engage around the world. It's hard to think about a single time in history when America fought alone. There are only one or two conflicts where that occurred, so the bottom line is it takes a team to win, especially in the modern security environment. And because of that, I am excited to have Air Marshal Harvey Smith the Royal Air Force's Air and Space Commander with me today. Working together with other service branches and international operational commanders, he oversees the generation and employment of air power for the UK. Well, Air Marshal Smith, first and foremost, thank you so much for sitting down with us all today on the Aerospace Advantage. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's great to be back on one of these discussions. It's nice to be back in DC. Awesome. Well, we're so, so happy to have you. We also have General David Deptula with us. So, sir, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah. Hey, uh, thanks. Great to be here, Slick. And also General Kevin Chilton, who goes by Chile, sir. Welcome uh, to the show again. Thanks, Slick. It's been too long. Great to be back with you. Air Marshal, let me just reiterate our thanks for you being here. And what I'd like to do right up front is just take the opportunity to commend you and your team. I've flown with the RAF on numerous occasions and uh, employed RAF assets in combat. And your Air Force is absolutely second to none. The interoperability and trust between our respective forces affords really powerful synergies. When you look around the globe these days, could you please describe just how the RAF sees the threat environment and how that overlays with your national interests? Nice to uh, hear you again. Great question. I think we have been talking quite recently around living in what we're calling the dangerous decade. Uh, obviously, particularly an unpredictable world that's playing out on our eastern flank at the moment in terms of what we see happening in Ukraine. We've seen tensions rise in the Pacific just by dint of the UK's geography, where we find ourselves located in the world, we have this quirky 360-degree outlook on things where we look west and we're Atlanticist in our relationship with our closest ally, the US. Uh, we look to the north, to the high north. We see how climate change is, is changing the strategic importance of the high north and what that means to us in UK. And when we look to the east, and particularly our our role in NATO, the Euro-Atlantic region, uh, and how that's all been brought into stark relief with what's going on in in Ukraine. So, from a from a UK perspective, this idea of an unpredictable and dangerous decade brought absolutely perfectly to life with who would ever have thought Wagner Group would have marched on Moscow a few weekends ago. These types of unpredictable things happening, uh, what does that mean for us? Are we prepared for it? Are we learning the right lessons from a very high-octane fight in Ukraine? And are we applying those lessons uh, into a military and into a government, but specifically for me, into a military that, frankly, for the last two, two and a bit decades has been very, very focused on the counter-violent extremist fights where we've been uh, creating headroom at home by doing things like becoming garrison efficient, not necessarily being in a place where we would war fight from home. That's where we train and then we go overseas to deserts various to chase bad guys. Uh, all of which was obviously strategically important at the time, but we see that whole thing change where we are back in a discussion around possibility of state-on-state -state conflict and what that means for us. So um, I think dangerous and unpredictable decade is probably the best way to describe the way we see the world at the moment. And that has played out here recently as I did a rewrite of our integrated review. So we effectively did a QDR or a defense review in 2021. I 
post after Ukraine happens, we relooked at the integrated review uh, and did a refresh of it. And I think the analysis in the IR was right. We identified where all the threats were and where the instability in the world would be, the challenge to rules-based international order, etc. What was not correct and what we have now acknowledged is the pace at which that has all been happening, uh, particularly in Europe. Uh, and our new I, uh, IR refresh and the rewrite of the Defence Command paper has recognised this in terms of us having to do things quicker, uh, inject more pace and agility into how we respond. Lord Marshal Smith, Kevin Chilton here. It's great to hear your voice again. It's been a while since we've had a chance to visit and I'm so glad you could join us today. You, you mentioned changes in the strategic environment globally. And certainly we've seen a big change in the last two decades in the threats presented by our potential adversaries in space, a formerly uncontested domain to one that has been clearly become contested. And I think at Mitchell, from our vantage point, uh, one of the key things going forward to address these threats is to begin with first uh, an effective deterrence posture that includes both making it more difficult for an adversary to eliminate the space capabilities we so depend on for operations in the other domains, but also to field a credible offensive capability that would hold their assets at risk that they have come to depend on to conduct conventional operations in the other domains. So it's first about deterrence, but then ultimately should deterrence failure, it, it's about defeating the adversary and and uh, concluding conflicts on our terms. I was wondering what, what your thoughts are on the increased threats to the space domain and how you're thinking about the future in this area. Yeah, another excellent question. This is why I got brought in to do the director space job for us to cohere that activity, to understand it better, to put in place a much better approach. Hence, we now have a UK Space Command, which stood up two years ago. We now have over 500 folk in there. We've got a great exchange footprint across the US in various key positions just to help us bring on our space capabilities and our understanding of that. I think when you talk about space deterrence, for me, uh, space deterrence starts with the discussion around alliances. When we look at what nations such as China are doing in space in terms of rapidly advancing their capabilities, um, our counter to that is to have a proper alliance so that uh, if there were any nefarious uh, ideas from a nation like China, uh, when, they look, when they look outwards, they don't see another nation. They see an alliance of nations all saying, actually, that's not how we're going to behave in this domain. You know, space behavior should be done in a certain way, and you're not doing that. Uh, so using entities like the UN, et cetera, to put in place proper policies for the future, really very important. And then using alliances like the Combined Space Ops Initiative, which at the moment is Five Eyes plus France and Germany, soon to bring all those into the fold. Those alliances are incredibly important in terms of putting in place the right uh, deterrence posture. And... Uh, they're incredibly important for us all then to be able to work collaboratively and coherently together to develop capabilities all the way out to right of arc space control capabilities. Yeah, so hopefully that that's kind of answered the left to right, and that's a pretty big question that we could talk about all day. Um, but deterrence is the starting point for sure. Yes, yeah, I really, really appreciate uh, your perspective on that with regard to space, because uh, I know a lot of people are giving thumbs up around the room with your answer and just really that focus that we need to have in identifying the fact that we do have adversaries in that domain. I do want to shift gears here quickly to see you know, how you see NATO evolving to handle the current threat environment. You know, The conflict in Ukraine has obviously a focusing event for us. We're seeing generational expansion of the alliance and you know, most member states are modernizing their forces in ways we haven't seen since the Cold War. So what are some key factors that you're watching? What we've seen there is that NATO didn't fracture. And in fact, it solidified and it rallied um, to the point where we've brought in two other nations at rapid pace, Finland and Sweden, uh, where before the Ukraine war, 
that just wouldn't have been a topic of conversation. We're seeing pretty much every nation in NATO start to ramp up their spending, uh, defence spending, lots and lots of new money coming into our collective defence posture. Uh, we're seeing a, a renewed focus with meaningful effort. In the past, we may have talked a lot less doing. I'm seeing way more doing, particularly in terms of interoperability, uh, and particularly on what would have been seen as quite hard nuts to crack, like F-35 interoperability, where we're making incredibly positive strides under uh, General Hecker's leadership in USAFE uh, through the European F-35 chiefs. So that focus, in many ways, rather uh, strangely, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has uh, has been a catalyst for NATO to really, really productively cohere. So has had the completely opposite effect of what Putin had hoped for, I would argue. Um, you know, it always helps when you've got a, a common focus on a common enemy, and that's certainly where we are at the moment. Just looking at the work that's going on in NATO at the moment, I'm particularly close to in my current appointment. And our commitment to the new NATO new force model, you know, we've just announced in our rewrite of the Defence Command paper that UK commitment to a new force model will be uh, will be greater than ever, modernising our forces and contributing where we can uh, to to NATO. So, for example, we're the only nation at present that has committed carrier strike group to NATO, and obviously our carrier strike group is fifth gen. That's a big, big step forward. And then if we just you know, stay on that topic of fifth gen, if we look across Europe over the next back end of this decade into the early 2030s, you know, at, the, at the latest count, there are upwards of 600 plus F-35s on the NATO books. Only 10% of those are US, based out of Lake and Heath in the UK. Um, so more and more NATO countries coming on board with fifth gen and more of those assets being made to be truly interoperable so that we can fly and fight together. Uh, so, you know, the, it, it's pretty clear from a UK policy perspective that NATO is the cornerstone of our array, of our security, particularly in the Euro-Atlantic and the Arctic region. Um, and our commitment to NATO, 2% of GDP plus over the coming years is incredibly solid. Harv, I'd like to build on some of your comments. How is the notion of deterrence evolving for NATO, given all these variables that you talked about? We see Putin uh, regularly engaging in nuclear saber rattling. Uh, China's really pressing hard, and most NATO nations do have Pacific interests. How do we shape the decision-making calculus um, of our opponents? I think we'd all agree that Putin's decision to invade Ukraine was a dramatic demonstration of deterrence not working. H how do we avoid that in the future? Uh, so I think in, uh, in UK, we still stand by those original three C's of capability, credibility, and communication. We've been talking um, about a further three C's. We talk about it being comprehensive, being coordinated, and being coherent. A comprehensive in so much as it's an all of government effort, diplomatic information, military, economic, the dying principle, which we would all know and love. All too often, particularly in my career, I've seen uh, people very quickly reach for the lever that is the military lever and less so on the others. Uh, we've seen a bit of that play out in Ukraine. Um, and actually, a lot of the discussions I've been involved with recently were people. The first question is, well, what will the military do? And my response is, well, what are we doing diplomatically or what are we doing with economic sanctions or how are we getting after this in a, in a different way that just doesn't mean spending more money on 155 artillery shells? That idea of having a more comprehensive approach, cross-government approach is really very key and part of the integrated part of deterrence, I guess. On coordination, I mean, the, the clues in the title like, um, from a... Mm use of allies and having very, very solid alliances. NATO is a great example of that, but there are many others. And obviously we see NATO as the appropriate response to the Euro-Atlantic and perhaps Arctic 
what's that look like more broadly for the Pacific alliances like uh, like ASEAN, etc. Um, but what's the role for something like NATO there? So coordinating your response with uh, with stalwart alliances, and then lastly, I think most um, importantly, this idea of coherency, where we use the tool of our deterrence in a coherent way, and that starts with properly understanding the threat, and a, and what our appropriate response to that should be. I think your comment, just to be a little bit challenging back, your comment around deterrence failing in, in Ukraine, I absolutely you can stand by that because obviously we didn't stop Russia from coming over the border. I would though say that I think NATO's response, um, and you know, this this is caveated with how will we ever know? I I defy anyone to properly understand how President Putin thinks. But I do I do think that NATO's response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine has in many ways deterred that conflict from becoming something more than it is, deterred it from spilling over into other nations. I it's been interesting for me that we've not necessarily seen a huge response from Russia in other domains like the space domain. So arguably we could say that very strong response from NATO has deterred further escalation. Yes, there's been lots of rhetoric and saber rattling around reaching for nuclear. I'm hoping beyond hope that it never goes there. I do think more broadly, other nations from around the world are watching with avid interest around how NATO has responded to Russia and Ukraine. And our response to that conflict will hopefully be deterring others from ideas they have. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very difficult one because you're second-guessing what hasn't happened. Um, but I do think that the, the response that we've seen and our continued support, both in terms of uh, money, training, policy, diplomacy, etc., in itself has shown that when we, as an alliance, come together, that's a pretty formidable thing. And that in itself has a, a pretty major deterrent effect. Sir, thanks for that rundown. It's absolutely interesting. I know that the uh, the listeners are really interested in this. And, and one of the things that I want to ask you while you're here is considering all of these challenges that we're laying out for both of our respective nations, the fact is that we are both really stretched thin when it comes to air power and space power capacities. As we all know, demands for air and space effects are immense and assets and personnel stretch thin to meet this ever-growing demand. How are you handling that uh, reality in the RAF and broader within the MOD? Very good question. I, and something that uh, we're talking a lot about at the moment in the Air Force and across the Air Force. I've been really, really honest uh, with our people that in 30-odd years of serving in the Air Force, a lot of which has been operationally focused, um, I've not witnessed a tempo as high as what we see today. In the past, when we have spikes of high tempo, we started discussion around, okay, what will we stop so that we can, so that we can sustain? What's different at the moment, and this is where I'm being quite honest with our folk, I think we're seeing a new normal. And the tempo that we're experiencing at the moment isn't going to decrease. And actually, there's very little opportunity to stop anything else. So, for example, you know, what's going on in space? We have to do that. Uh, chasing submarines in the North Atlantic because they're perhaps threatening undersea critical national infrastructure. Uh, projecting air power around the globe as far as the Pacific from the UK whilst being still fully committed to homeland defence, quick reaction alert, both at, in the UK, in the Falkland Islands, in the Baltics. I've just brought a typhoon squadron home from five months in Estonia. That tempo isn't going away. So this idea of, well, we just have to pedal harder doesn't work for me. The pedaling harder bit means you break your people or you break your stuff. So we're having a discussion around, instead of pedaling harder, how do we find a different gear? What does that different gear look like and how do we get after that? Our chief of defense, our chairman equivalent, has challenged the whole of defense 
a under a banner of what he calls IDO, improving defense output. How do you get more from what you've currently got uh, with no additional resource, people or money? How do you get more from it by working uh, in a smarter way? In the Air Force, we've just started a new program, which I'm running called Enterprise Optimization, or we just call it the Optimize Program. And this is very much about reaching out to the squadrons and particularly the squadrons because you know we've all been there. I, I, I don't know many squadrons I've served on, but certainly I always had a view when I was on a squadron. If they'd only let me be king for a day, I could do this so much better. And we get that all the time. You know, the, the top of the Air Force is stopping us from being as good as we can be. I, you know, I say that a bit facetiously, but that's the general crew room chit-chat. So I'm calling people's bluff on that. I'm saying, okay, you tell us how you want to do it better. And, and at the top of shop, we'll see how we can enable that for you. Um, and as long as you're not breaking the law or breaking our people, if this is policy, and particularly if it's policy that we've put in place for ourselves, then we can change it. And if we can change it and make us more effective and efficient, then we should. And if you come to work and you're doing work that you can't draw a golden thread from that work to us being more effective uh, as a warfighter, then you shouldn't be doing that work. And that we've been really honest with the Air Force about this. And we're challenging into the optimized program to bring forward good ideas. I think across our defense, structure the RAF is leading on this certainly that's what I see I would say that but that's what I see I think we're doing some great work in our forces like Typhoon Lightning A400 particularly our rivet joint force where by listening to the squadron listening to our people and just changing some of the policies that would allow them to operate that aircraft in a different way we went. Uh, we increased the operational output by between 150 and 200 percent, with no new money and no new people, and actually better availability of aircraft. And that's because we were willing to listen to our folk, and then help them implement the good ideas. That's what optimizes all around. And then I think that's how we will get after uh, sustaining the tempo that you talked about in your question. Harv, that's great to hear, and I really applaud your comment, particularly with respect to focusing on what increases combat capability and not so much on the other stuff, whatever that other stuff happens to be. Now, it's also fantastic from our perspective that the United Kingdom is now a fifth-generation air power nation. Uh, could you talk to us a bit about how the F-35 is evolving and how it's changing the way you think about employing air power? Yeah. So I've been very lucky in my career because I've been around particularly F-35 from, well, from when, we, when they did the, the Lucky Down Select. So I've been around it for a long time and, and involved in many different appointments. So it's been brilliant to see it come from what was a good idea on PowerPoint and the glossy brochure that came out of Fort Worth uh, to actually seeing it on the squadrons being used and, you know, I would argue that it is delivering everything we thought and hoped it would. Um, it's also presenting challenges in all the areas that we thought it would, like sustainment, LO management, et cetera, et cetera, mission data, and the, particularly the sharing of mission data across different nations. So none of that has been a surprise. Um, our, uh, our F-35 force, our Lightning Force, uh, uniquely for an air force deploys to sea. So um, unlike many other nations, um, I've spent a lot of my air force career operating off Royal Navy aircraft carriers. It's always, a, it's always a good joke in meetings when we talk about who's got the most time at sea. And it's one of the light blue people in the room, which always makes for good banter. Um, but we, um, I think we're very happy with where we are on F-35. I would say it's less about bringing it into service, and it's more now about force growth. How do we rapidly grow the force? That's, that's a challenge for us, uh, particularly in terms of building the pilot numbers up and getting the aircraft numbers bought and getting them pulled in. We're aiming to stand up our second frontline squadron by the end of this year, and then both our frontline squadrons will deploy on HMS Queen Elizabeth back to the Pacific 
early 2025 for a kind of an eight month deployment. Um, I think for me, one of the biggest things that I've learned about a fifth gen is how it makes fourth gen better. And that is something we didn't necessarily talk about as much in the early days of the program. It was all about this bubble of cool stealth airplanes going off and uh, doing classified things uh, in the dark. And actually, what we're learning is that if you can properly network fifth gen to fourth gen, then you turn your fourth gen into four and a half gen, and that makes you greater than some of the parts. And a four ship of UK F-35Bs properly linked with an eight ship of Typhoons that are carrying Meteor 2 and uh, you know a, a hell of a lot of AMRAM, then that's a pretty, that's a pretty potent mix. Um, and that's something that we're really starting to get our teeth into as we learn more. We saw that play out recently on the Red Flag Dash 1 of this year where we had Typhoons operating with US 5th Gen in a, in a Pacific scenario and Typhoons shooting long-range Meteor working with F-35 is a pretty potent, that's a pretty potent relationship. And that's something we're really, really trying to get after and understand. And that will become even better when we deliver the E-7. And E-7 F-35 Typhoon for us with the right weapons mix is a, is a formidable, uh, it's a formidable capability to present into any, into any alliance. The next step for us is this idea of we've talked a lot about interoperability and that has that has matured into a conversation around interchangeability, which is much more challenging. So if I take a UK carrier to the Pacific, how can I one day operate British airplanes off it, the next day operate Japanese airplanes off it, etc., where we just are completely interchangeable and it's it's transparent. It's just about delivery of fifth gen effect. That's the next big goal for us. And we're we're hoping that in 2025 we can dip our toe into that and have a go at what interchangeability would look like. And I'm sure it'll throw up a ton of challenge around policy sharing and uh, everything that we enjoyed in terms of trying to be interoperable with the US Marine Corps in 2021 on board Queen Elizabeth. But hey. No one said it was going to be easy, and I think the juice is definitely worth the squeeze here. Hey, thanks for that. Let me just ask you a follow-up. Um, how is all of this informing your thinking uh, for your new uh, Tempest fighter program? Great question. Um, so, well, I'll try and link from the last one to this. And if we use Ukraine, again, I touched on it earlier. Um, I think the biggest, the biggest lesson around Ukraine is that control of the air really, really matters. And when you when neither side can gain control of the air, we end up in this stalemate, meat grinder, pulverizing World War One style fight, like we're seeing in Donetsk and Bakhmut and places in eastern Ukraine. Absolutely heartbreaking to see hundreds of thousands of people die in that way and cities be destroyed and families ripped apart. So, you know, from my view, sometimes we end up having to go to war. And if we go to war then you know, we should be trying to make it happen pretty quickly, get it over and done with, be decisive. And the big lesson that's come out of Ukraine for us and the narrative that's landed very firmly in Whitehall is around the importance of control of the air. And both sides of that coin, one being integrated air and missile defense, stopping them from getting into my airspace and counter IADs, having the capability to punch into their airspace and control it, even if only temporarily, so that you can do your business in the other domains. And we know that fifth gen is a key element of that, but we also know that all of the counters in terms of service-to-air threats, air-to-air threats, etc., etc., we're in the cat-and-mouse capability game, and at some point there'll be well, maybe not a parity reach, but certainly an equation that is no longer acceptable. So we've got to keep moving, and that's where sixth gen comes in. So everything that we've done in terms of being a partner, a tier one partner from the very early system design and development phase of F-35, all the way through to a production sustainment and follow-on development of that platform, everything that that's informing into our typhoon, uh, combat air flip force, uh, all of that 
is informing where we're going with what is now called the Global Combat Air Programme. Many will know that's now a, a formal strategic partnership with UK, Japan and Italy. Um, uh, what was previously called the Future Combat Air System and part of that system being the manned fighter bit, which we've called Tempest. Uh, there are, there are full-size mock-up models of Tempest. I think the only thing that I know for sure about Tempest is that it's probably not going to be that. Um, we still have a lot of work on the development, what the manned element will be. Uh, for me, what's more exciting is the broader discussion around what's the manned, unmanned, crewed, uncrewed. Uh, what's that look like in terms of autonomous combat platform support? Um, some really interesting developments going on there in the UK and others. I was just with Boeing over at St. Louis a few days ago looking at some of their work there. Uh, really very interesting how we would take some of that forward in terms of teaming. Um, across a, an air system rather than an, an aircraft. So, hell of a lot, lot of work to go on FCAS. I'm, I, I'm really very excited because my eldest daughter has just got a job working in our FCAS team. So, like 20 odd years ago when I started out as a youngster in F-35 and here it is now flying off carriers and young pilots flying it and loving it. Um, she's about to start that journey on, on FCAS, so I'm very jealous of her. Um, it's also good to have a spy on the inside so that I know what's going on. Um, so, yeah, I think everything we've done to date will help inform uh, sixth gen. Probably the big difference for me on sixth gen that we have to get right is this idea of information dominance, information superiority, and that air system being right at the heart of that. So connected to the combat cloud, uh, completely informed of everything that's going on. I think the days of, there's still some truth to the fighter pilot uh, adage of, you know, speed is king. But I think we're in a world where information is king. And uh, if, you know, you might be sat in an airplane that can't go just as fast or as high or pull as much G, but if you know more, if you know exactly what's going on in the battle space and you can have decision superiority, you will always win. And that's where we need to go with our sixth gen. And certainly that's the, that's the heart of that program. People get very hung up on what's it look like, how stealthy is it, what's its radar cross section, et cetera. Um, actually, the question to ask is, you know, how many terabytes of data can it process using AI? And am I the smartest person in the battle space? And if we get that bit right, then it'll have been an enormous success. Our multi-domain operations are something we think about a lot these days. It's hard to think of a mission in the modern world that is strictly air, sea, land, or space. It's almost always a combined effort across domains to net a, a desired effect. Uh, to this point, and uh, you mentioned the acquisition of the E-7. And um, that C2 ISR battle management system can also collaborate with space assets with the combined results far more powerful than uh, what the individual fasts could deliver on their own. I was wondering if you could walk us through your thinking on this. This is a little more near term than the far term discussion we just heard, but and perhaps how you're you're looking at integrating these capabilities with allies. Yes. Um, so firstly, I would start by just saying I agree <laughs> everything you've said, um, as would UK Defence, I think, in, in our integrated review, in our defence review in 2021, the, well, let's call it the secret sauce of that whole defence review was MDI. Um, that, was, that was the thing. Everything was hung off of this idea of MDI. How do we... Uh, how do we take the step beyond joint and become integrated? What does that mean? How do we do it? Uh, it's a difficult conversation because when you talk about MDI to make it properly work, you then quickly start having a discussion around data, networking, sharing, connecting. It's electric string. It's less pointy, cool new airplanes sitting on a ramp and it's more buying electric string and connecting things. So sometimes it's a bit harder to really land 
you know, I need X billion because I want to buy this type of electric string and we'll all be able to speak to each other in the same language. Or we can all speak in different languages, but we all know what's going on. Versus here's 25 new cool pointy things that are going to sit in the ramp and you can come and have your picture taken next to them. That discussion's very hard. So actually delivering on MDI, we find it relatively easy to have the conceptual discussion, relatively easy to articulate the goodness of it and why we need it. Much, much, much more difficult to deliver it. Uh, really difficult to deliver it. And it can very quickly become a boily ocean moment where you're trying to do everything for all people and you achieve nothing. Um, so just trying to get our arms around our own in-house uh, integration, multi-domain integration, even single domain integration is hard. I mean, you walk. I walk into our space up center uh, in the bunker at High Wycombe and there isn't one computer sitting on a table with everything being fed to it. There's 25 different systems and the sensor fusion is the brain of some young corporal who has a roller chair wheeling between all those different computers trying to build SA. So integrating even in our own domain is hard. Uh, trying to do it across different domains harder. Trying to do it across different services and different nations even harder. So we shouldn't fool ourselves that this is easy work. It's definitely not. Um, and my experience of it is it's small, take it in small chunks, keep chipping away at it. Uh, everybody knows it's the right thing to do. You need to look for quick wins to, to be able to overtly demonstrate why the juice is worth the squeeze on getting after it. Um, but I do think there are some very clear synergies. I think there's a clear synergy between airspace and space. I think there's a clear synergy with cyber running through it all. Airspace and cyber as a three, as a three ship, as it were, is something we're working a lot on in the world force at the moment. Um, and then new capabilities coming online, as you mentioned, the E7 uh, are absolutely key to that. And I think if we bring the E7 into service and think we're just going to operate it like an old E3, then we've, we've made a massive mistake. And it's interesting because a lot of people talk about it like that. And it makes me slightly irate. Um, it's like saying we're bringing in an F-35 and I'm just going to fly it like we flew the Harrier. We know that that would be the wrong thing to do. Um, you could do it, but it would be a waste of time. You might as well just buy more Harriers. So you're right. I, uh, I can't wait to get the E7 into service. I can't wait to start doing tests. I can't wait to putting it in the hands of our youngsters because one thing I know for sure is they will unearth a thousand different things they can do with that platform that at the moment we don't even know it can do. And we're seeing that happen. Uh, we've got quite an extensive footprint of Brits out at Williamtown in Australia doing what we call seed corn flying as crews with the Aussie E7 force. And we're already seeing just even by the fact that they're British and they come from a different operational background, a different theatre, that they're pushing the E7 to do things in a different way. And then the Aussies learn from that and we learn from them because they're in the Pacific. So that idea of cross-sharing is, is really, really very key. We again, my discussion earlier today in the Pentagon with my opposite number there, and we were talking about US collaboration on E7. E7 could be one of those in terms of a, a trilateral type MOU approach to how we operate it in many ways, like we do with the rivet joint. So, 20 rivet joints in the world, rivet joint 18, 19, and 20 are Royal Air Force assets, but we're all part of that rivet joint collective effort of 20 it's interchangeable we fly each other's jets we mend each other's jets you know when the captain of an rj in japan is sick we send a british person out and they fly the mission um how do we get to something like that with e7 and then how do we connect e7 instead of it connecting to just the air domain how do we connect it through space in a meaningful way where you know, why couldn't E7 be part of a LEO-based constellation where it's just another node in that whole network? Of course it should be. Um, so we're having all of those thoughts. The key now is to get the aircraft delivered and start doing it.
Sir, one thing to note on uh, on employment, uh, as you mentioned, it's going to be the, the young folks, the corporals and everybody else that are going to really take this new equipment and, and really innovate. And I'm sure that they're going to water our eyes with, with what they come up with from a TTP perspective. And that's going to be super exciting to see. I want to circle back to one of the comments that you had mentioned earlier about having a 360 degree view. Uh, here at Mitchell, we just released a report assessing Northern Tier Challenges especially uh, as they relate to, you know, domain awareness, cruise missile defense, and integration of modern capabilities. Obviously, the UK shares these equities. So what are your thoughts on security factors in this part of the world and how to handle them? Yeah, brilliant question. And we've just recently renewed our policy statement on the high north and the Arctic. Um, Incredibly important to us from where we sit in the world. Uh, You're right about cruise missile defense. I mean, this is for us particularly with what we're seeing Russia do with its long-range aviation in Ukraine, um, defense of UK homeland is less about launching typhoons to intercept bear bombers, and it's more about understanding uh, where those bear bombers might launch cruise missiles uh, against the UK. And they're not going to do that over UK airspace. That's going to happen off the coast of Norway or in the Greenland-Iceland Gap. And it could be anything all the way up to, you know, hypersonic. So how do we see that? How do we find it? How do we understand its intent? How do we, how do we intercept it, destroy it if we need to? So the high north is incredibly important to us, both not just from a security perspective, but also UK prosperity, our energy, as we see climate change melt the high north. Um, in open source, it's very clear that nations like Russia and China, I, already starting to invest very heavily in the high north in terms of their infrastructure or when it becomes easily accessible and you can sail a ship directly across the North Pole and cut down all that time for trade. That's worth a lot of money to countries. And if there's one thing we've learned that when there's a prosperity angle to anything, then you have to protect it. Uh, You know, a sea line of communication, being an island nation as UK is, and the history of the Royal Navy, and they'll tell you X percentage of the world's trade goes by sea. Uh, hence, we need to understand this, the maritime domain, and we need to be able to protect it because that's what keeps certainly our country alive. And the High North is absolutely critical to that. For me, really key point here around alliances. So we're part of an alliance called the JEF, kind of sits within NATO, but is a standalone thing. Uh, Ten nations in Jeff, the Joint Expeditionary Force, I'll not list them all here because I know I'll forget one. Um, But mostly the Scandinavian countries, Nordic countries and the Baltics. Really, really key alliance because the focus for Jeff is north and high north. So, Harv, if you were to look 10 years out into the future for the RAF, what are the major accomplishments and objectives that you'd like to see in place? And what does this look like? Uh, great question. We, uh, we've just had a new service chief arrive in the last month or so. And we've been having this discussion around where he is the new chief over a three to four year tenure wants to take the service. Um, so I think the first thing is we're in quite a lucky position because within the next two years, we will have completely recapitalized all of our major equipment. Um, then, and this links back to my discussion earlier around the optimized program, then we're in a point in a place where there's no new stuff coming. You've got what you've got. Now, how do you use it to best effect? And this is where optimize really comes to life. I think if I was looking, if I was projected 10 years forward and looking back, I would like to hope uh, lessons out of Ukraine we'd really taken on board and done something about. I'd like to hope we'd have a better integrated air and missile uh, defense approach in the UK. Frankly, it's woeful at the moment. Um, The latest defense command paper has highlighted that the Air Force should lead that effort and my current two-star operational commander is about to go into MOD to start that work. I would like to hope that within 10 years we'll have seen some, some form of a Tempest fly and our GCAP program be brought to life and it, to really have stepped up a gear and start delivering, uh, particularly into the late 30s, early 40s. I'd hope that our Space Command will have grown 
uh, perhaps doubled in size and that we would have delivered on some of the really interesting capabilities that we've got in design and development phase at the moment, particularly around space control. And amongst all of that, I think it's essential that we make the leap to putting data at the heart of everything we do uh, and embrace things like machine learning and AI to really use that data to help us have decision superiority. Those are the kind of the big things that I would hope for. Just looking at our different forces, the Combat Air Force, Typhoon will still be with us, but by that stage it will have an upgraded, uh, what we call Radar 2, a new AESA radar, and it'll be flying with some new weapons, upgraded meteor, Spear 3, which is like SDB2 on speed. Um, we should have completed the force growth on our F-35 force by that stage and be able to field 36 jets on a carrier with two carriers giving us 365 days a year coverage. And I would hope, mindful of where we are today in some of the early programs, I would hope that we would have fielded and be flying, certainly training with uh, autonomous cooperative pro uh, platforms, whatever they may be, from small aircraft that can do swarms to aircraft that effectively present uh, uh, afford me a bomb truck capability to fly alongside F-35, Tempest, etc. All of this we're trying to wrap up in what's called our Gladiator program, which is very high-end synthetic training so that we can properly train for this in the way we mean to fight. On iStar, I will still have ORJ. Um, we're doing a very interesting trial at the moment. We're using a company called Helsing to see how we can use AI to do the PED of the RJ download and instead of it taking days, take seconds. That's proving very, very positive and a very interesting work. I think having that type of capability on board so that you can almost do real-time PED and make, again, have decision superiority will be key. Um, on, uh, on the ORPAS side of the house, we will have delivered Protector, the MQ-9B, uh, which will have an ISR and an armed capability, 40 hours endurance, and importantly, can fly and control their space alongside the airliners. So that gives you a great capability for homeland defense if required. I'd like to hope, being slightly provocative, that we would have at least thought about and started to put a plan in place to buy more than three E7s. At the moment, our program of records three. I think when we've delivered them, we're quickly going to realize we need at least two more maybe even more than that, depending on the threat. On air mobility, it is going to stay the same, to be honest, where we are, C-17A400 and Voyager. We've just taken the venerable Hercules out of service. I never, I never uh, expected to see the day that we would take the Herc. I thought it would be with us forever, but actually having delivered A400, which carries 50% more, goes 25% uh, faster, uh, it's just a phenomenal machine, and it was the right thing to do in terms of uh, graduating to the next capability. Kind of like uh, taking Harrier right and bringing F-35B in. It's a generational step forward in TACAR, and the A400 is really starting to mature quite quickly for us. I would hope on our Voyager tanker, we would have had, at least had a discussion and maybe delivered some form of uh, boom capability. At the moment, we're just probing drogue. And we do find that that restricts us a little bit. And then, I mean, there's a ton of other things I could talk about. But for me, I, one of the biggest challenges we have in the Air Force at the moment is not around, it's, it, it's people. And it's not about attracting people. It's about retaining them. We have such brilliant people join the Royal Air Force. We do not have a problem with attract. So last year... We had 45 cockpits for fast jet pilots with 16,000 applicants. So we can afford to pick the very, very best of the best when it comes to aptitude and skill. The challenge is when you have those rock stars in your service and then you give them world-class training and you make them world-class at their job, they're very attractive to the outside world and they're offered extortionate amounts of money to step away and do other things in the, in the outside world. So we're doing a lot of work at the moment around improving our service offer that will help retain. And a lot of that, I think, starts with having a, 
a renewed operational focus and a reining around what the Air Force is all about so that you get up in the morning and it's not about how much money goes in the bank. It's about putting your uniform on and uh, you're working in the world's best Air Force and defending your nation to the best with the best equipment and looked after in the best way possible. Um, I'm not naive to think that our Air Force is the world's biggest. Obviously, we're nowhere near that. But I'd like to hope that we would continue to maintain the reputation we have today of being the most reliable and credible, uh, a solid, dependable ally. And this idea of really becoming even more agile, both in thought and action, is something that over the next 10 years we would uh, we'd hope to hone and deliver. Hopefully that. Well, we'll see. In 10 years' time, you can play this podcast back and we'll see how much of that came to life. Thanks very much for that response. And, sir, I was going to add, you know, I would have stayed in uh, another 20 years, but General Deptula may be an offer I could not refuse. So I totally agree with uh, <laughs> pulling people out. I kid. But Air Marshal Smith, General Deptula, General Chilton, unfortunately, we are out of time for this episode, but I can't thank you all enough for your time today. It really has been a pleasure. And, sir, safe travels back to the U.K. Well, thank you very much again for the opportunity. Like I say, it's great to be in D.C. and whilst here, just an exceptional opportunity to come over and, and meet a few people in real life as opposed to virtually and to contribute again to another podcast. Hopefully it lives up to your expectations, but thank you again for the opportunity. Yeah, let me just add my thanks from uh, on behalf of everyone at the Mitchell Institute. Thanks so much, Air Marshal, for being here. Have a great aerospace power kind of day. And I'll add mine as well. It was great to talk with you again, Harv, and wish you safe travels back home to the UK. Thanks, sir. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.